This is Macro Horizons, episode 117, Rebound Referendum, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of April 26th. And with the extended May 15th filing deadline quickly approaching, we're reminded that the only certainties in life are taxes, rising prices, maybe, and the knowledge that even at their best, Macro Horizon jokes leave NPR producers with unmistakable schadenfreude. After all, sometimes the purpose of a podcast is nothing more than to serve as a warning to others. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, we saw an impressive rally in the treasury market. Now, it wasn't a rally that broke the prevailing range. However, what we did see was an extension of the underlying bid that has kept 10-year yields closer to 150 than to the peak of 177. Now, the price action has also been notable insofar as it's occurred with the backdrop of a variety of economic data points that were at least ostensibly constructive for the outlook and should have put upward pressure on yields. Starting at the beginning of April, we first saw the stronger-than-expected non-farm payrolls print, followed by better-than-anticipated ISM services, as well as a stronger-than-expected core CPI number, capped off by a notably strong retail sales print for March. All of this would suggest that everything else being equal, rates should be drifting closer to 2% than within striking distance of 150. That implies clearly that something else is afoot. And as we look at the positional landscape, what we see is that some of the short base in certain sectors has been eroded. However, there's been an extension of the real money short as evidenced by the Stone and McCarthy survey, which implies that there could yet be another leg lower in yields from here. There was also some chatter that an increase in corporate issuance coming out of the financial sector led to hedging flows and an impact on swap spreads that ultimately pushed the nominal treasury curve to lower rates. Now, we're somewhat skeptical of that narrative, primarily because on net hedging flows do tend to have a neutral impact on the market. Rate lock hedging or the unwinds only become relevant when they trigger important technical levels or contribute to a shift in the prevailing trend that was already underway. However, given the in-range nature of the price action, we suspect that there's a different shift in the undercurrent. With the beginning of the Japanese fiscal new year, we have seen a renewed interest in purchasing overseas notes and bonds from the region. While the MOF data doesn't give the breakdown between U.S. treasuries and other global sovereign issues, we are working under the assumption that the vast majority of what has been purchased by Japan 
is in fact flowing into the treasury market. As we think about what this implies for the balance of April, we can't help but nod to the two and five year auctions on Monday, as well as the seven year on Tuesday, as an important gauge of the ongoing sponsorship for US treasuries at these yield levels. Well, it wasn't a busy week in terms of economic data, but that doesn't mean it wasn't an important one for the treasury market. You make a very good point, Ben. And we often use the adage that sometimes the price action itself becomes the story. And I think that that was particularly apropos in the week just passed. Primarily, that's simply because 10-year yields, despite the 20-year auction and even the five-year tips auction, managed to grind steadily lower throughout the week. Now, we haven't breached the lower bound, which is effectively 152.5, but we did test it now a second time, all with the backdrop of what is, at least ostensibly, positive economic developments on the horizon. Think about the week ahead, for example. We have the Fed, who will surely reinforce the lower for longer narrative while being cautiously optimistic about the recovery. We'll also get the first look at Q1 real GDP and expectations are for a quarterly annualized rate of 6.5%. It's difficult to argue that that's anything but a good start for 2021. And both of our math capabilities are far from strong, but what I'm a little bit concerned about is If we get a 6.5% print for the first quarter in terms of real growth, how likely is it that we're able to at least keep that pace up over the balance of the year or accelerate from here, given all the fiscal stimulus we've seen injected into the system? To be fair, Ben, no one told you there was math in this job, although it might have been implied. That being said, you highlight one of my big concerns, and that is that because of the increased pace of vaccinations and the associated reopenings, what we've seen is the rebound be front-loaded to the first and part of the second quarter in 2021, and that will leave one of the biggest risks being that the market takes the trajectory established early in the year and projects it out through the balance of the year. And that raises the bar for the real economy to perform in the second half. But even within that context, it's still notable that 10-year yields are a lot closer to 150 than to 175. And I would argue this week's jobless claims data, which covered the April NFP survey period and showed the lowest initial filers numbers since the pandemic began, exemplifies exactly this dynamic. While sure, versus the extreme numbers we saw in the middle part of 2020, this week's figures were encouraging. But looking back over economic cycles past, the number of people filing for jobless claims is well above any prior peak, excluding the absolute darkest days of the global financial crisis and the recession experienced in the mid-80s. So even though we've made meaningful progress out of the pandemic, both in terms of public health and economically, the fact that there's still so much slack in the labor market yet to be absorbed resonates with your concern. One of the other issues that has become extremely topical is given the inability of the treasury market to push 10-year yields beyond 2% during the first quarter, what would it take? This is a question that we've received several times from clients, and that is, given that we stalled out at 177 in 10s, what would need to transpire over the course of the next several months to get 10-year yields to trade with a two-handle? In short, we would need to see 
a series of very strong non-farm payrolls prints. Now, we're still running at a deficit of roughly 10 million workers that have been displaced because of the pandemic. Therefore, back-to-back NFP prints in the 2 to 3 million range over the course of the next three months would be a really good start to rekindle the bearish ambitions that were brought into the beginning of the year. That said, given the push to reopen sooner rather than later, I'm concerned that a lot of the job gains are going to be front-loaded, and so we will see a strong April print, and that will rekindle expectations for higher rates initially, but then as we move forward to May and June, we'll see that the pace becomes more difficult to maintain. Now note, I didn't focus on realized inflation because frankly, I think that at this point in the cycle, even if we have another strong core CPI print or two, it won't be enough to really push market-based inflation expectations higher than we see in 10-year break-evens at roughly 230, 235. The logic here holds that the Fed is sure to characterize some of the upside in inflation in the very near term as transitory as we look to a post-pandemic environment and the potential for wage gains to actually sustain the upward pressure on consumer prices. And that's contingent on the rebound in the labor market, which is why investors are so focused on non-farm payrolls at this point. And while maybe not explicitly bullish, we have reached the point in the cycle where we're going to see what has been pointed to as a very bearish variable removed. And what I mean by that is given the year of record net issuance that we're going to have, the fact that the bulk of the crisis level spending is behind us means that coupon auction sizes are going to start declining likely later this year. Now, we do get the May refunding announcement on the 5th, and generally speaking, expectations are for unchanged sizes there. But as we get to the August and November refunding announcements, it's reasonable to assume that some of these record large auction sizes are going to start coming down. And what that suggests to me is that for all the worry that supply was going to quote unquote break the treasury market, it seems we've received an answer to what record large 10-year auctions are worth. And that is 1.77%, arguably not even that high, given that that yield peak came alongside the surge in optimism that we saw during much of the first quarter. And reinforcing this point, if we look at the ACM term premium model, there has been a marked return in term premium, particularly further out the curve. And in such an environment, if we still can't get 10-year yields to 2%, I think that that is very telling, especially given what now marks a decided shift in policy objectives out of Washington. Specifically, we have gone from Biden's initial push at another round of fiscal stimulus to longer-term reforms that include not only corporate tax increases, but also increases on the individual level. And that's ultimately going to have ramifications on the pace of consumption as well as valuations in risk assets. And I worry that that's going to be one of the next key chapters in the macro story of 2021. And as well as those headlines on capital gains tax increases, we also saw the GOP introduce an infrastructure bill of their own. Now, it was roughly a third in terms of outright size, as that suggested by the White House. But nonetheless, it appears that on both sides of the aisle, the idea of an infrastructure bill is gaining traction. 
So far, it seems that the preference is to fund this via corporate tax increases rather than more deficit spending. And while the economic benefits of such a program would follow intuitively, it will not be of the same variety of the fiscal deals we've seen passed within the last 18 months. An infrastructure program is going to be a much longer term endeavor over the next 8-10 years, which will have a far slower stimulative influence than, say, three rounds of direct payments. Or, frankly, even a fourth round of direct payments. There has been chatter that once we get to the end of the extended unemployment benefits, which expire on Labor Day, that there will be political will to push through even further fiscal stimulus. Now, we're somewhat skeptical of this notion, given the fact that we should be, as an economy, far enough through the inoculation process and close enough to herd immunity that by providing incentives for workers to stay out of the labor market, we'll ultimately be doing the real economy a disservice. The question will be one of ensuring a short-term base level of consumption or forcing the issue of retooling parts of the labor force to better fit the post-pandemic jobs landscape. And I'm a little bit more concerned about the achievement of herd immunity, period, not even necessarily by the end of 2021. We've already started to see anecdotal evidence, at least, that there are certain pockets within the U.S. where vaccine supply is exceeding demand. This inflection point is only going to become more widespread as all the individuals who want to receive the vaccine have done so. It's going to be that final leg of the vaccination process that ultimately is the most difficult. While 27% of the adult population being fully vaccinated is certainly an accomplishment and versus the rest of the world a good development, it leaves the U.S. well off of that 75% level that seems to be the consensus for what's required for herd immunity. And a reasonable concern is the flattening of the vaccination curve. There was a very steep uptake, particularly as more supply came online. But there will be a point where the campaign shifts from queuing for the vaccines to actively advertising to get people to come in and have the vaccine administered. We haven't really seen much of that shift yet, but we are starting to see some indications that that's quickly approaching on the horizon. That, coupled with the pause in the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, does, if nothing else, reintroduce to investors the risk that the path toward herd immunity is not without hurdles and potential pitfalls. And the calculus around when this will ultimately happen is... is Been been calculus? Really? (laughs) You sure? Like I was saying, well outside of our analytical wheelhouse. What remains to be seen is the degree to which COVID mitigating restrictions are rolled back, even without achieving that herd immunity threshold. The risk there is that the real limiting factor becomes people's willingness to re-engage in in-person commerce, travel, etc. If the populace doesn't feel safe in going back and re-engaging in the economy as we did in 2019, that will slow the prospects for a service-driven rebound that have so defined this stage of the recovery. So what you're saying is reopen it and they might not come? But to not reopen it would be dumb. And we know dumb. Do we? Who's that? In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have a variety of inputs to help refine expectations going forward. Ostensibly, the highlight should be Wednesday's FOMC rate decision and Powell's press conference that follows. Our expectations, however, 
are that the Fed has no incentive or urgency at this point to shift the monetary policy stance. So what we'll see is a reiteration of the lower for longer guidance, as well as some acknowledgement of the stronger start to the year than many had been anticipating, as well as the increase in COVID cases globally. So a balance of risks to be sure, but one that won't have a lingering impact on the treasury market. More importantly, we do see the first quarter real GDP print, and with a consensus of 6.5%, we will be watching to see how investors respond to this piece of economic data. If we use the price action thus far in the second quarter as any indication, one should expect that the treasury market will shrug at a strong GDP print and move on to pricing the risks that once we get past fiscal stimulus, the economy will struggle to retain the momentum that it's starting the year with. It's this degree of apathy toward the realized economic data that has largely defined trading thus far over the course of April, and in this context, a drift toward lower yields wouldn't actually be that surprising. We're maintaining our year-end target for 10 years to end 2021 in a range of 125 to 150, with an acknowledgement that is a reasonably wide range, but it is in contrast to a lot of market expectations who see 2% 10-year yields as a path of least resistance. In the very near term, we will be watching the takedown of Monday's two-year auction of $60 billion in the morning and Monday's five-year auction of $61 billion in the afternoon. We'll also have the seven-year on Tuesday, and as the seven-year has been a focal point for the bond vigilantes, we can't help but acknowledge its importance in defining the rate landscape over the near term. If we see a reasonable tail of note, it will be difficult for 10-year yields to push through the 150 level. However, if in keeping with the return of Japanese investors, we see an outsized foreign allocation for this particular benchmark, that would solidify this notion that the earlier struggles of the seven-year were one-off, and as coupon size expectations start to fall in the year ahead, we might ultimately have established the peak in yields for the first half of the year. We're operating under the assumption that if 10-year yields are not above 177 by the time the May refunding settles, that that will represent the upper bound for rates as we look for the seasonal influence that favors lower treasury yields over the course of the summer to take hold with an objective of seeing rates bottom in the middle of September as the true economic performance of the year becomes much more evident and the success in the efforts to reach full reopening and herd immunity become more obvious. We've reached a point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as the summer approaches and the COVID-15 conflicts with our beach-ready ambitions, we cannot help but wonder if others at the gym are laughing at us or with us. Well, since we're not laughing. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, 
we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.